God is God of order. God never does anything without a purpose, without a plan. God never does anything quite obviously that is not very well thought through and that is not designed to be efficient and to do the job at hand that needs to be done more effectively and efficiently than anything else ever possibly could. There are many things in God's Word that we know about, but we do not understand, for there is not within God's Word the revelation that sometimes we think we want, but there is all within God's Word that we can handle. Occasionally, there is something revealed in the Scriptures that is buried, as it seems, among other things, and it requires deep study and commitment of heart and life for God to pull back the curtain of eternity and reveal to us the treasure that is buried within his word. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong unto the Lord. But when God's word draws back that curtain and reveals that thing which we want to see, then it is ours. We may know that it is true. We may build our lives upon it and we may teach it boldly with no fear because God always honors his word. I'm grateful this morning as I ponder the wonder of what we'll study that you don't have to understand everything about God to be saved. You just have to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and give him control of your life. The sea could not hold Jonah, and Scripture says that the grave could not hold Jesus Christ. In this passage, we will see revealed that the best argument and the best motivation against sin in a Christian's life that anybody has is the fact that Jesus Christ suffered because of sin and he died to destroy it forever. Sometimes believers in all ages have been prone to ask, well, if we're really right and if the Bible is really true, why are there so few of us? In this magnificent passage of Scripture this morning, we will see that there was a time Peter reminds us of that the Scriptures tell us about when there were only eight people in the entire world who were saved. And only one of them was completely right with God. But because of his faith, God saved he and his family and the world perished. The church is alive and well, God will save, God will preserve his own, and that is the message of 1 Peter 3, 18 to 4, 6. We talked this morning about purpose. God never does anything without it, we have said. And in this passage, God reveals just a part of his purpose relative to some things that are very dear to the heart of every Christian. Notice, first of all, in verse 18, here is the purpose of Christ's death. Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices which were offered had to be offered every day for guilt and sin. They had to be repeated over and over and over again. But from the New Testament, we learn that it was only because in God's economy the, the old sacrifice could look forward to a time of eternal sacrifice that they had any effectiveness at all. They had to be repeated every day, but the sacrifice of Christ was one time, once for all, because the blood of Jesus was enough to pay for all the sins of all the world for all time. I would remind you, it says Christ died. He truly died. He died as a man dies. He died not only to the flesh, but his soul suffered the pangs of death. He had to meet death in the usual way or his death would be to no avail for any man. As a sacrifice, he had to be put to death and he had to be made alive again. You see, he laid down his life. But the scriptures say here, and it is echoed in Acts 2.36, Acts 4.10, where it says that Jesus was put to death or was crucified by certain of the Jewish authorities, but he was brought to life by the power of God. As a sacrifice, someone, the great priest, had to slit the throat and offer the sacrifice. And God led himself to the altar. And there he died once for all for sins that we might be saved. You know, sometimes we unintentionally act as though God is very angry and Jesus stands between God and us. That's not true. It was because of the love of God that Jesus came to the cross. There is no confusion uh, no conflict in God. There is no collision between love and wrath. They are two sides of the same coin. And sometimes we lose sight of the fact that Scripture says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It was not God the Son only. It was God who died at Calvary. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It would be no act of love for God to turn his head or to go create another universe and let sin run amok. It would be no act of love for God to let sin go unpunished. And so God bore the eternal punishment for sin. The purpose of his death was that sin might be eradicated. And this verse says that he might bring us to God this word bring, the root of it in the Greek is a very colorful word. In the Jewish background, it referred to the priest who brought sacrifice before God. But the Greek word is very interesting for the one in the Greek is called the introducer. At the royal courts, there was an officer in the Roman world who had charge of all access to the king. And if you wanted to get to the king, you had to be introduced by the introducer. 
And this is the word that Peter uses here to describe the fact that Jesus brings us to the Father. He has control of access to the Father. And if you want to get to God, you must come through Jesus Christ. All that he did was for us. His falling down in death was for us. His rising up in resurrection was for us. He wore the robes of our poverty and our humiliation in order that we might wear the robes of his splendor in glory forever. Here is the purpose of his death. He died once for all for sin to bring us to the Father. And then notice in verse 19, here is the purpose of his descent. Now verse 19 deals with the descent of Christ into hell. But I have found out studying very, very carefully the scriptures, comparing one with the other, something very beautiful and exciting here. We studied last Sunday night in Isaiah that Christ bore the penalty for sin by suffering hell because that was the penalty for sin. But here in 1 Peter, he is not referring specifically to the bearing of the penalty for sin. For first... During the three dark hours on the cross, do you recall that about the ninth hour the sun was darkened and the earth shook as God turned his back and Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the moment of his total separation from God during the three dark hours on the cross, he suffered the torments of hell. And then at the end of that time, you will recall how Jesus said, it is finished. It was over. It was done. The price was paid. Salvation was accomplished. Our redemption was provided. And at that point, he committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. That was his descent into hell as a sufferer bearing the penalty. And oh, how it must have delighted Satan. For you see, there was in the battlefield of eternity a great pit, the abyss, the place of punishment, the place of separation where all unholy and unsanctified and wicked goes for eternity. And God had served notice on Satan at his rebellion that someday he would be bound and thrown into the pit. And how it must have delighted Satan and the demons to see Christ on the cross, to see God turn his back and to see Christ descend to the place of the damned. But that's only half of it. This verse talks about him going after his body had reunited with his spirit, the word is vivified, been made alive. He again went to the abyss, but this time the blackness of eternity was flooded with light, eternal light and the glory of God, and there he proclaimed that victory had come to God and to good, and that salvation was sure and damnation was certain for the rebellious. Oh, what a scene it must have been. 
In our text, it says in verse 19 that he went and made proclamation to the spirits now kept in prison. From the book of Jude, in the book of 2 Peter, this is the place of torment. It is the place of hell. The word made proclamation is not the word for evangelize. For when the Bible, the New Testament, talks about sharing the gospel in order that someone might be saved, it is the word euangelizo, which means to evangelize or to tell the good news. This word is the word keridzo, which means to proclaim. He was like a herald carrying a message of victory, merely a matter of information. The purpose of his descent, first of all, on the cross, it was to complete our salvation. And then secondly, after he was brought to life again, it was to announce that victory had come and that the power of Satan had been broken. In verses 20 to 22, here is the purpose of Christ's resurrection. Now in verse 20 and 21 is the very beautiful analogy between the salvation that came to Noah and his family and the salvation that comes to us in Christ. The purpose of his resurrection was to secure our resurrection for his salvation to us would not have been complete unless he had broken the power of death. It consolidated his power. It completed his work. In verse 20, we are told that Noah and his family were saved through water. But wait a minute. The water of the flood was the agent of destruction. The water of the flood covered the earth and drowned everything except the eight and the animals who were in the ark. And what the Greek word means is they were saved by way of water. The only way the water can be said to have saved them is that the water supported the ark in which they resided, and thus the ark becomes the agent of salvation. In the picture of Noah, and the flood, the water represents the judgment of God on wickedness. It was a literal event. It happened. I have stood atop mountains 12,000 feet above sea level and seen the fossils of little fishes. The mountains were covered by water. It was a literal thing. It was the agent of destruction. The water represents God's judgment. Likewise, Peter says, baptism pictures our bringing to safety through the waters of God's judgment. Now, isn't that a beautiful picture? Those in the ark were saved in spite of the waters of judgment by the grace of God. And we Christians, the people of God, are saved in spite of judgment because of God's grace through the eternal ark of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture it is. 
The word figure or corresponding in verse 21 is the word anti-type. In the Greek, the word pupon means a seal, an official seal. The word anti-tupon means the impression made by the seal. And so he says the tupon, the seal that makes us official, is the death of Christ and our salvation in spite of judgment through his blood. The antitype, the impression of the seal, the illustration, the analogy, is the deliverance of the eight souls who were saved by way of the ark of God's grace in spite of the waters of judgment. Now Peter says, therefore baptism now saves you. You know, I think perhaps Peter being fully inspired yet did not contemplate what men would do to the word of God through the centuries. For Peter had heard the words of Jesus in Luke 12, verse 50. Peter knew what he meant, and a very casual observation of this text will tell us exactly what he meant. He does not mean that there is any saving power in the water in which any Christian is baptized. He goes on to say that, that he's not talking about the washing of our bodies. He's not talking about literal water. He is talking about the fact that when we were saved, we were baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sealed and made official forever, secure with no threat to our salvation ever again. In Luke 12, 50, Jesus said this. It is exactly the same word. Jesus said, I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Baptism now saves us. The baptism of Jesus Christ at the cross. Consider further symbolism. The waters of the universal flood destroyed the old world, but they gave birth to a new world. Noah was saved from the waters of destruction, but the agent of death became the giver of life. For when Noah came out of the ark, he and his family. They inhabited a new world that had been purged from all wickedness and sin and made new by the waters of judgment. And beloved friends, it stirs my heart and it must yours to realize that the waters of judgment flowed over Jesus Christ and the judgment of God on His Son at the cross gave us new life. We, like Christ and like Noah, have passed through the waters of death into a new life, and that is the purpose of his resurrection. And then in verses 1 and 2, 
Here is the purpose of Christ's suffering. Very simply, we are told to our amazement that Christ has suffered in order that we might be strengthened for our suffering. Peter says, arm yourselves, take a weapon, and the weapon we are to take is the mind of Christ, the same attitude he had. And the attitude Christ has was that he would suffer as necessary for the good of man and the glory of God. And we as Christians are to arm ourselves with the same attitude. We are to drink of his spirit until his death and his power and his resurrection are duplicated in us. And then our suffering becomes like his suffering. Then no longer will we be controlled by the flesh. Thus we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. That is the purpose of his suffering. Then in verses 3 to 5, here is the purpose of Christ's judgment. The purpose of his judgment. He says in verse 3, very calmly and matter-of-factly, Peter says, Brethren, have we not spent enough time in sin as the enemy of God that now... Being saved, we ought to spend the rest of our time within the tabernacle of this flesh, living to the glory of God. Now it is different. Now we are changed. And now because we know Christ died to eradicate sin, we will live no longer therein. You know, it is impossible for us to comprehend the depth of the immorality in the Roman Empire. If you were in Rome, you would find on a very famous hill a very famous temple called the Pantheon. And the Pantheon contained the image and allowed the worship of every god of the ancient world except the true God. Peter says here in verse 4 that the, your old companions in the world cannot understand. They think it very strange that you've changed your way of living. Well, consider this. In the ancient world, except for Christianity, immorality, drunkenness, perversion of any kind was a part of their religion. It was service to their God to be perverted, to be immoral, to be ungodly, to be an alcoholic. It was service to their God, and they could not understand it. And what Peter is saying in a roundabout way is that because of what man is, the judgment of God must come. The purpose of his judgment will be to eradicate sin from the face of the universe for all time. Notice in the last part of verse 3, 
he gives a list of six sins. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is very significant for this reason. Notice the order. First, there is sensuality. Now, there's nothing wrong with being sensual. That's just being aware of your physical senses. That's relatively innocuous as a sin. But then, sensuality gives way to lust. Lust means desires. Desires give way to drunkenness. Drunkenness to carousals. Carousals to drinking party, a gathering for the purpose of drunkenness and immorality. And they give way to abominable idolatry. Here, Christian friends, is one of the great secrets of Christian living. One sin builds on another and leads to another. That is why young people and everyone else too, it is very important that you be pure. For sin is not the plaything of any man, it is the master of humanity. And one sin builds on another and leads to another until it has run its gamut and sin, when it is finished, pays the wage of death and damnation and separation from God. He says they cannot understand. They cannot understand what? Well, they can't understand anybody's motive in living right. They can't understand their own guilt and they cannot understand the power of God. But nonetheless, Peter says, one day they will give account to him who will judge in the phrase the living and the dead simply means all men of all ages. Here is the purpose of his judgment that at last the universe might be what it was in the beginning, a place of pristine beauty and joy for God and his people. And then in verse 6, here is the purpose of Christ's gospel. Here is the purpose of the good news about Jesus. It is very simple. It is very direct. It is very pointed. We see in this verse, his purpose is first of all judgment. For they have been, this gospel has been preached even to those who are dead, dead in sin, dead in trespasses, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, the first purpose of the preaching of the gospel is to reveal to men who need God that they're dead in their sins and that judgment will come. But that's not all of it. God is a God of love. First, they will be judged in the flesh as men, and secondly, that they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. What is the purpose of the gospel and thus the purpose of our church? It is that the good news that men need Christ may be proclaimed, that judgment may be avoided. First, judgment. But the gospel is preached though, so that when a man is judged, his sins are laid on Jesus and he may be acquitted and then he may live 
a new life through the power of God. Oh, I feel sorry for folks who have not come to understand that the purpose of God is broader than judgment. The purpose of God is that when we are judged, we may be pronounced innocent because we have been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb and that we may live a new life according to the will of God. This new life that is the purpose of the gospel is ours now. You don't have to wait until you die. Eternal life is now, but it shall never end as we abide with Christ. In summary, let me say, as, as Peter has revealed some of God's purpose in these things that are very dear to us, that if you have the mind of Christ, as he says in verse 1, then you will be treated by the world the way that Christ was treated by the world. Notice that the gospel brings two results to those who are saved. It brings the approval and the acceptance of God and it brings the disapproval and the rejection of the world. But remember that Jesus himself wore the robes of our humanity so that we might be clothed in the robes of his eternity. And the message of the gospel is this, that Christ has died once for all for sin that he might bring you to God. May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the truth of your word. Father, I thank you for the beauty of the scriptures, for the wonder we feel as we realize that the great ark of our salvation has dwelt in the waters of judgment that we might preserve safe and dry. Father, I thank you that you've touched us. I thank you that you've given us new life. I pray this morning that you might apply the word and Lord, that we might understand your purposes in these things better so that we might have a higher sense of purpose and direction and motivation. Father, because you've saved us and preserved us, may we freely and wholeheartedly in this moment give everything that we have and everything that we are to Christ. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for souls that have been and are being and shall be saved because of this gospel. Bring them forward to share their faith with us. Bring Christians into the fellowship of the church because you will it. May everything we do be done to the eternal glory of Christ who died for us. I pray in his name. Amen.